we were warned that it would dominate our lives, but instead it has come to quietly underpin parts of our life that perhaps we never quite expected. Things like manufacturing and maps and travel. This week on Download the Show, we are talking about artificial intelligence. Just how intelligent is it? Where are we at with it right now? Where is it going? How should it be regulated, if at all? And ultimately, will it come to reflect its creators for better and for worse? All that much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. Welcome to Download the Show. And we are joined by science technology editor with NITV and one of the co-hosts of my favourite new technology podcast, Queens of the Drone Age, Ray Johnson. Welcome back. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. Glad that you're listening to the show. I am. <laughs> and can I just say, if you like Download, you will love Queens of the Drone Age. It's a fantastic show. And alongside Ray Johnson, we have Dr. Ollie Bown, who is from the School of Art and Design at UNSW. He's also an electronic musician. He's a researcher in creative technologies, and we are very lucky to have him. And he's also talking to us from a boat shed. <laughs> Ollie, thanks so much for talking to us today. No worries. Thanks for having me. I mean, let's be honest, when you think of artificial intelligence, your brain instantly jumps to Skynet. What are the <laughs> sorts of things that AI is doing now that perhaps we aren't aware of, that, that sort of sitting underneath the surface, maybe it's not as showy as bringing on the apocalypse that people should be paying attention to? Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, to answer this question, I need to, I think we really need to have a quick look at what artificial intelligence actually is, and then we can understand how it's applied in different areas. So you know, everyone's definition of AI is going to be slightly different because it is a bunch of different technologies all working together so that machines can learn and act with human-like, uh, not human, human-like levels of intelligence. Basically, any human process that we use machines or computers for, it can be sped up with artificial intelligence. And one of the uses of AI at the moment that I find really exciting is it's being used right now to analyse aerial drone photographs taken by Indigenous rangers up in Cape York. Mm. And they're looking for turtle nests and evidence of predators in the area so that they know where they are and you know how to protect the turtle eggs. And this is work that would take ranges on the ground months, you know, to do. And it can be done in around two hours, thanks to AI. And it means that in areas where there were no baby turtles surviving, you know, less than 30% of them are being killed today. So when you're looking at endangered species and the protection of endangered species, being able to use AI to analyse those photos to tell the rangers where to go next to bait the pigs and protect the eggs is is just incredible. I'm, I'm always really excited about the applications for AI and, and the interesting places that it's being used. Ray, are there areas of creative endeavours where AI is being used that you find particularly interesting? Yeah, I I always find it really interesting when you see the AI that is used to you know, detect an art style 
and to be able to recreate that, you know, effectively rendering artists obsolete. I think it's I think it's always nice to see that robots can take the jobs of even creatives. So I do joke though. I I don't think that you know when you're looking at something like art or music that you can ever really recreate the human emotional element to it. But I I do find that really fun that it can absolutely pinpoint who you are as a person and who you are as an artist and go, hey, here you go. This is what you're like. It's it's like holding up a mirror to the artist. So I'd actually be really interested to hear from artists who've had this done to them and what they think of the art that's been presented to them. I, I think it's a fascinating area. It's a it's a partnership. It's a sort of a creative endeavor that, that the two are embarking on. And I think that does really interesting things to like concepts of authorship and, and who is really an artist. And I think that stuff's really fascinating. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting at which point we begin to look at, you know, these programs at at the AI as a collaborator with artists as opposed to just a tool that they're utilising. And I have had some interesting conversations with different types of creators about how they really perceive some of these programs. And obviously it differs from person to person, but yeah, the, the idea of you, you're not just bringing up something and it's a tool that you use and you move on, but you look at it as a, an independent creative being almost that you work alongside with as opposed to just use, I, I think is fascinating for our future. Is that how they regard it, the artists that sort of work with this in creative spaces? Depends how wacky the artist is, to be honest. <laughs> Depends how open-minded they are. Uh, you know, some more traditional people are just like, yeah, no, it's a tool that I use, don't be silly. But others are like, yes, you know, the machine and I, we are we are on the same page. We are thinking as one. Yeah, and they're inspired by what the machine is doing. And I think they sometimes perceive the machine as inspired by what they're doing, which on a base level it is because that's how it's learning what to do and what to present back at them. Yeah, the, I think it would be difficult to separate ego from something like this as well. Mm. Yeah, when, when you've got a program that is you know, reflecting back at you who you are, mixed around in different ways and presenting to you something better than you possibly could have thought of yourself. It's <laughs> it's hard not to think of yourself as being quite genius, having inspired a computer to come up with this. Ollie's, uh, Ollie's neighbours are doing some gardening in the background, but we'll persevere nonetheless. Um, Ollie, when artists relate to the, these sorts of technologies, things like uh, artificial intelligence helping with music or, or with art, do they view it, the artificial intelligence, as, as like a separate entity or do they view it as an extension of their own creative work? Well, I think that's a great question, which is emerging all the time because um, very often when we're working with this technology, we're doing it with a technologist involved and a, and a team, you know, some, someone who's actually operating the AI because we're really only reaching a point now where there's a, a proliferation of uh, tools that people can use themselves and, and we're really starting to see people use those tools. It actually causes us to reflect quite a bit like all of the tools we use in some way are, are, are kind of extensions of our body and of our mind. They're, you know, there's the kind of extended mind theory of, of interacting with the world around us where even a, even a pencil or a paintbrush would be considered that way. So that's quite a natural extension but it does have all of these uh, implications for where we sort of draw the line of ourselves and the boundary of our cognition and our action mm. and our identity. I think that's what's really getting interesting is that 
these tools they they embody uh, identity they may they may capture our identity as Ray was talking about or they may um, they, that they may have a style or a character of their own and that, and that's starting to get super interesting because you can think about the, this idea of sort of like a pet like sort of customizing and um, over time like building this longer term relationship with the tools you use how do you use this technology like is there an example you could give me of like how to, it's been done in practice that you've seen yeah um last year uh the music studio based in sydney called uncanny valley they um they're, they're very they're, they're a production studio but they're very very keen on working with ai um for a number of reasons and they basically there was a song contest that was put out, and it was an it was an AI song contest, and it was it was sort of styled on the Eurovision song contest. So there was actually a Eurovision theme, um, perfect for Uncanny Valley because they're you know they're kind of big pop producer <laughs> sort of style. They they took what's probably a pretty standard process in in the field of basically just asking a, a generative system to spit out melodies and also lyrics as well. They they got a text generation system. Um, and then they just went about working with that that um, set of tools, but uh, that set of outputs. But what they also did that was quite interesting was um, uh, working with another academic uh, RMIT, um, Sandra Wiedengebird. She uh, works in actually matching lyrics to melodies. So all of these lyrics were generated, and you can look at the lyrics, but actually it becomes much more musically interesting when you actually think about how those lyrics are, how they're stressed and how they might be sung, a more in-depth songwriting process than just grabbing some words and grabbing some melodies. So mm. she, she was actually blending these things together and then, and then generating from these two sets of things that had been generated, then also generating a set of matches which had a score based on how well her algorithm thought the stress was being matched between the lyrics and the, and the melodies. That almost um, so feels that, like cheating at that point, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, 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 always, it's all cheating. I mean, I mean, that's what a lot of people say, right, is, is you can't do this, you're using an algorithm. Um, of, course it, of course it can be perceived as cheating, but the interesting thing about it is that, I mean, just a moment's thought is that's ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's music creation and you can do that by whichever means you like. <laughs> just listening to you talk there, one thing that did occur to me is what were the limitations you found where you sort of, you came up against the barriers of what the technology can and can't do at the moment, Ollie? Uh, well, that's all over the place because, I mean, the, the, um, you can go online and play with some of these systems yourself and that's quite an interesting thing to do. In fact, it's one of the great things about how this technology is becoming user-focused and the web makes that so easy. So um, people should go and check out um, OpenAI. They're the very well-known um, you know, major AI company. They've been doing lots of experiments with music, and you can play with mixing and matching different things. For example, you can seed an algorithm with a piece of music and then also give it a style. Uh, so you could seed it with some famous pop singer but give it the style of Chopin, and it will start to continue that piece of music. Oh, um, really? Yeah, so uh, you ask the musical experts, and they'll they'll. Um, it's quite interesting seeing what difference of opinion you get from different people. So, um, are people I'm purists not, still, or is there generally an openness to, to experimenting with new things? Oh, I think there's always an openness, but but just basically whether someone considers that like musically successful or talented um, will will depend a lot on their background and, mm. and what they're listening out for. So, personally, I'm always searching for the weird quirks and things that don't quite sound right <laughs> um and 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 that's how loads of people are approaching this is like 
yeah, let's let's see the AI mess up. I'm not going to lie; that is kind of my reaction. When when the music competition was happening, I remember hearing the song, and a big part of my fascination was how did it arrive at mixing that lyric with that beat with that tone? Like it was more just the sort of marveling at the end result, and then almost instantly trying to reverse engineer. How did it come up with that? And I, and I guess that is a challenge for this sort of entire category, which is it, it is a bit of a novelty at the moment. And novelty is important, mm. right, because it's at the bleeding edge. But at some point, the question will be when it stops being a novelty and when it does it become a standard part of, of people's life and, and work. And I guess to that point, Ollie, do you think we are far away from that or is it going to remain in that novelty space? I think that we are turning that corner as we speak. So just put out my recent book and I've been researching that over the last four years and 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 there was a sort of crazy rush while I was researching it there was just this crazy rush of newspaper headlines in Wired magazine or or, or more mainstream press just saying you know um is is AI you know here's an example of someone using AI to compose music or make art massive rush of interest in this area and but always with I mean you can't avoid the I don't mean this in a bad way, but the gimmick factor or the novelty factor of the fact that you're doing that, the conceptual, most people are engaging on this on a conceptual level. They're interested to see what happens when you start to deal with AI generation. So that's now become so routine for those people who are watching this space that, um, you know, the novelty starts to wear off and the, and the real practical questions, um, you know, is this a good way to generate music regardless of the uh, the, the, the conceptual excitement that people are getting from it. You are listening to Download This Show. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week are science and technology editor with NITV, Ray Johnson and Dr. Ollie Baum from the School of Art Design at UNSW and the author of Beyond the Creative Species. Ray, outside of, of music and art, where do you see the limitations of AI at the moment where, you know, people are experimenting with it, they're trying it and we haven't quite leaped a hurdle in particular areas? Uh, yeah, I think you know, the, there's a number of factors that need to be at play for AI to work. It's not just something that you can throw into any business organisation, you know, plan, and it just instantly happens. And I think you know, one of the big ones is that it needs a solid base of data to work with. And we have seen a massive increase in a lot of industries, in a lot of companies all over the world, you know, collecting and storing a lot more data now than they ever have in the past. And, you know, looking at ways of processing that and utilising it for furthering their business. I think when capitalism can drive anything, when there's (laughs) potential to make money out of, you know, any kind of innovation, you're going to see big leaps and bounds in it. But you do need that data to begin with. And another element of it is you need humans. It's it's not made by the machines. And we do need data scientists and other specialists to get these programs up and running and to make sure that they're maintained. It can be a little bit expensive to set up and to maintain if you're operating within an industry or a business that doesn't already have those specialists there in place. And there is also a risk when you are collecting these huge amounts of data and storing it and using it, that it could be lost or breached or, you know, the programs that you've created could be unreliable 
because at the end of the day, it is people that is creating artificial intelligence and we are flawed as humans and we come with our own sets of bias. And you know, it depends who's making these algorithms as to who is going to benefit from it the most. So there's quite a few factors at play, yes, but we're, we're seeing it expand into so many different areas. And I'm really excited about things like, you know, education. Mm. and tailored education. And, you know, we all learn differently. We all have different ways that we absorb information. And to have you know, apps and programs that are able to learn, you know, what's keeping us engaged the longest, what's helping us learn the fastest, and to be able to tailor how it's teaching us to that so that we can learn better. I think that that's fascinating and really exciting. And, you know, I think we're going to see it also be beneficial to businesses and industry, but not so beneficial to people and humans in some places, particularly in you know, finance, for instance, where we're going to see a lot of AI being used to calculate whether or not someone should be given a loan or should be able to have their mortgage payments put on hold or you know, whether they should receive any kind of benefits in, in a way. And you know, we've, we've seen how terribly that can go with mm. <laughs> things like robo-debt, for, for instance. I think there, there definitely needs to be a more human element when you know, people's livelihoods, when people's futures and their well-being is at risk. So I think we've got definite limitations with what AI can do, but still some very exciting things. Ray, are there regulations or guidelines or codes of practice that exist around the world around the development of AI at the moment? Yeah, it's it's kind of one of those instances where a few areas do have kind of wishy-washy regulations in place, others have a little bit more solid, and others are just kind of thinking about it. So in China, there is full state control of Chinese companies and their data, you know, including everything that's used in AI. So it's, it's incredibly strict in China what you can do with AI. Uh, the European Union for example, uh, says they say that only high-risk AI needs regulating. So they will look at artificial intelligence. They'll look at the training that's needed to be able to use it, the way the data is being stored, you know, any impacts if it happens to be inaccurate. They look at if humans are overseeing it or if it's just left to run of its own accord and any special requirements that are needed, particularly in biometrics. So retina scanning, fingerprint scanning, any kind of you know, storage of that personal information and data. And they use that to determine whether or not something is high risk and should be looked at more closely. Uh, you know, the UK, for instance, is really supportive of AI and it has places like the, the Alan Turing Institute, which is guiding more ethical design of AI. So they're making sure that there's ethics bound in what's being produced. And the UN, this one I find particularly interesting, <laughs> has been talking about fully autonomous weapons. Sure they have. Of course uh, they have. I mean, why wouldn't they be talking about that? <laughs> They've been talking about it for almost 10 years now, 
which is a really long time. And there have been pushes from everywhere for a preemptive ban on fully autonomous weapons uh, by a whole range of different groups all around the world, including the beautifully named Campaign to Stop Killer Robots, <laughs> which I believe I've been covering as a tech journalist for at least the last six years. And there is currently no preemptive ban on fully autonomous weapons. And yeah, I, I'm kind of of the thinking that we should get cracking on that. Well, just I, I want to bring Ollie to back in here. I want to bring Ollie back in here. Uh, Ollie, obviously, uh, killer robots doesn't necessarily interact with your professional life, but what do you think the uh, the ethics of it and the regulations around AI should be? Like, is there a is there a framework with which you think should exist for the development? Because we're talking about technology that, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's, it is in its infancy compared to what it could be. What would you like mm. to see sit around uh, the development of AI that will help guide it into the future? I mean, on the killer robots front, yeah, definitely, definitely not my area. Luckily, <laughs> um, you know, I guess, I guess, more tangible for most people are things like self-driving cars in terms of safety, because um, you've got you've got situations where a robot, uh, where where an AI system might be responsible for someone's death, and there's uh, obviously consequences for that. There's obviously this major argument coming from big tech that this is going to be safer, and and uh, you know, I, I think there's some truth in that and yet huge complications regarding exactly how how that's managed um and i think that that remains this actually this really messy area where, where it's not going to be a very clear-cut process towards us all driving around in self-driving cars some of the other things that ray referred to like you know i mean it might be it might be very routine algorithms i think i mean you can see this in your everyday interactions with google they're they're using ai in in myriad ways to serve up information and that information or, or, or a service or an, ac an action, you know, something like how it responds to your voice and that kind of thing. From an engineering perspective, the, the, the major question is, you know, does it work, how well does it work? Is it 95, 99% accurate? But the, the more, the trickier question is what to do when it doesn't work and, and who's responsible and what steps need to be made to rectify that. Mm. And, and if you think of the, you know, like, yeah, the, someone just said earlier that the this is going to be great for companies, probably not so great for individuals. I, I'm inclined to to actually agree that there really has to be that responsibility to make sure it serves people like all technology and all design ought to do. It, it, examples of everyday, yeah, like what your insurance premium is or whether you deserve welfare, um, these these things, I, I think there should be an expectation of transparency. But actually, you know, I mean, that's a that's a that's a basic requirement that maybe people can get behind. But then actually the question remains, how on earth do you make a neural network transparent? One of the things about these systems is they're not a set of rules. They're not just a decision tree. Um, they're actually this really complex uh, set of mathematical iterative matrix calculations. And so to reveal the process uh, is, is non-obvious and... Um, there's a field called explainable AI, which is which is trying to its basic job, and it's turning out to be people are realizing more and more that this is so important is that we have to be able to understand what things are doing, and and that actually sets an interesting challenge because if you think about what the equivalent is in humans, like what what's an explainable human? Well, a, a human can explain explain themselves, but you don't have a window into their neural processing. No. And if I ask so my should, therapist to tell you, it'll break the therapist's code of practice, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so should an explainable system explain itself in the way that we would explain ourselves, or should it 
open up its neural circuits and we can peer inside and expect to see what's going on. So then what is the, in your view, the best balance then? You know, we, we, we sign terms of agreements, we never read them and, you know, we click away the thing on the cookies and that, that's everyday internet activities now. If we're talking about something that's infinitely more complex and something that is in effect, you know, growing and changing as it learns, what do you think is the best balancing act of like letting the technology be as dynamic as it can be whilst also giving people some transparency, some agency over how it's working and how it's affecting their life. Is, is there some structure around that, that that you think might work, Ollie? I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> that's okay. We, that's fine. When you, put, when you put it that way, it's just a bit depressing. <laughs> but, uh, Mate, it wouldn't be down like the show if we didn't end AI, up with Ollie. something being depressing at the end. <laughs> but, I, but I think um, commitments to standards. I mean, opt-in and opt-out email subscription is, is something that everyone ex- has experienced. Um, you know, the thing where you do something with a company and then the next thing you know, you're receiving their mailing list and you're not quite sure why because you're sure you didn't click that button. Um, we, get, we get that all the time. There's a, a whole field of design, an area called dark patterns, which are about coercing people or tricking people into pressing a button when they don't mean to and that sort of thing. And these kinds of patterns of uh, customer engagement or user experience should just be identified and called out for what they are and that should be something that we should be able to name and shame. I think recognising that there are people behind all of these programs is probably the most basic, easy way to approach this at the end of the day and and understanding who has created them and why and making sure that any kind of bias that they're putting into the algorithm is addressed and stopped at the very get-go. And, you know, we need to be looking at who is creating these programs, yes, but more importantly, we also need to be looking at who's not creating them and who's not included. And I think some of the most extreme examples of artificial intelligence kind of going wrong in this instance is in facial recognition technology uh, that has been trained to you know detect faces basically obviously but as the name would imply but because of the team behind them because of who has made these algorithms the technology that has been deployed can't tell the difference between facial features in people of African descent Mm. for example uh, which has resulted in false arrests in the UK It's, it's actually had real world consequences so making sure that those teams that are making the AI are diverse in every way. It makes for a better end product that's easier for us to consume with a bit more you know, confidence and, and safety and reliability. But you know, when we're encouraging people to enter into an industry you know, like tech, like you know, working specifically in artificial intelligence, we're asking them to enter into industries where they've been historically underrepresented and therefore may not be particularly welcomed and it might be really difficult for them to be working in those areas. So while we can have all of the programs in the world aimed at encouraging you know, women and other underrepresented people in these areas to you know, work in AI to make the algorithms better for the people at the end of the day, we need to make sure that those workplaces are ready for them as well and that they're safe places for them to be working. I I think it always just comes back to the human element with anything in technology. And I think I might just give the last word to Dr. Oliver Bowne. Um, what do, would you say is the biggest myth about artificial intelligence that you'd like to be paid to for once and for all? Uh 
That's a huge question. Wow, <laughs> where to start? Um, I, I think um, it comes back to something someone mentioned right at the beginning, which is um, the the expectation that it's going to come out like human intelligence um, is is probably the biggest thing that I think is, is sort of dominant kind of collective vision of of what AI might look like. And I think maybe that myth is slowly changing as we actually experience it happening in the world. And in, uh, in fact, it's sort of it, it is all around us already. And one of the things people talk about with AI is that the goalposts are constantly shifting. So what we think of as AI is the thing that's going to happen tomorrow and not the thing that we've already got today. But yeah, I think the idea that it will come out resembling and be you know, just like a human entity, I think it's going to be actually in, in one sense, one of the most interesting things is just we'll, we'll, we'll gain a sort of appreciation of the diversity of ways that intelligence can manifest. Dr. Ollie Brown is from the School of Art Design at UNSW. If you're interested in more of his thoughts around this area, you should check out his book, Beyond Creative Species. Huge thank you, Ollie, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And Ray Johnson from NITV and Queens of the Drone Age podcast, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Anytime. And with that, I shall leave you. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Download This Show. 